As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Today I'm doing something a little bit different. Today I'm cross-listing an episode. It's a crossover. This conversation was recorded between Adam Ferizaj and Piro Rexhappy. This conversation is on an area which I believe is under-theorized. And in listening to this episode, I'm super excited to bring this onto the Malcolm Effect, as I feel many people should listen to this conversation. This conversation talks about the Balkans and it's theorizing the Balkans from a decolonial perspective that speaks about the investment in whiteness amongst many other topics such as gender, the re-westernization. Honestly, I can't wait for you guys to hear this. Enjoy. Hi, Piro. How are you doing? Hi, Adem. Thanks for inviting me. First, let me congratulate you to the book since I'm currently writing my PhD on a similar topic, I found the book very insightful. I think it, it really does an excellent job in theorizing the Balkans in an unprecedented way, especially by adding race to your analysis. You not only show how coloniality plays a fundamental role in the region, but you also give some, let's say, intellectual autonomy or relevance to the region. You show what the Balkans as a region of intersecting empires adds to ongoing debates in decolonial and post-colonial studies. This is, um, these are some points I really liked about the book. But uh, maybe another question to start. Can you tell us more about the writing process? Okay, so <clears throat> I think I mean, so the writing process or the writing idea rather for the book comes from so many gaps in uh, how we think about the Balkans politically, uh, not only from a contemporary vintage point, but also from an historical perspective. And so when I think about gaps, I think of the uh, predominant Eurocentric historiography that narrates the Balkans in this progressive post-Ottoman temporality, whereby they establish nation states and they become part of post-Ottoman nations that become part of Europe, or rather that return to Europe, in part because the Ottoman Empire is always historicized as a, an incursion into European, what is conceived as European territory or European geography. And so in most of national historiographies in the Balkans, not only is there a 500 year gap, which usually erases the entire Ottoman history, but also the post-Ottoman moment is highly problematic in that it kind of takes for granted um, certain ethnic and religious identities, uh, it takes for granted uh, state formation processes. And so 
the ways in which these post-Ottoman mechanisms of rejoining, quote-unquote, Europe come to create new forms of others that may have not necessarily been there in the Ottoman period. Or in the case of Roma, for instance, a continuation of that form of racialization. Mm -hmm. And so I think the goal was to think beyond the narrow spatial and temporal historiographies to kind of open up the question of to what extent are the Balkans um, or the Balkan route, rather, this cordon sanitaire that reoccurs constantly whenever Europe feels under threat by racial others um, to kind of draw its geopolitical borders. And what's fascinating to me and what inspired this project is how we have almost a reoccurrence of late 19th, early 20th century geopolitical uh, process of designating European borders happening more or less along the same line in the post-Cold War moment. Um, <clears throat> and so I, I, I've tried to connect these two um, junctures, historical junctures, in defining European borders and what happens with them on the ground and the way that they're enacted on the ground and who is invited in and who is left out and who is left in that in-between ambiguous space, sort of waiting um, to belong and in the meantime constructing sort of a European identity, which is obviously for some populations enough like let's say the Croatians, the Slovenians, the Bulgarians or Romanians, or the Greeks who have already joined the EU, unlike let's say the Bosnians and the Albanians who are never quite there yet. Yeah. Um, and so I would say those are the larger geopolitical frameworks around which I thought of writing the process. But then there's also the more um, body uh, intimate spheres of how these geopolitical processes affect uh, the formation of subjectivities, um, the, the, the histories of racialized people who have not been written into the national historiography, um, and also how uh, desire for belonging is deeply and intimately intertwined with um, sexuality um, and, like I said, subjectivity. And so I would say that there's the geopolitical framing, which I had to do in part because, like I said, there has been so many gaps in theorizing this space, um, which are then furnished by histories of um, primarily sexuality and the way in which sexuality is used to reorient bodies towards Europe, uh, towards heterosexuality, towards reproduction, um, and fundamentally towards whiteness. And this kind of reorientation of bodies, uh, misaligned uh, subjects and communities 
or perceived as misaligned from Europe who constantly have to be re-Europeanized, re-Westernized, secularized as a way of leaving behind that which doesn't belong to Europe. Mm. Um, yeah, that's great. That's a really great start. And I think, I mean, I have read the book. I can relate to a lot of things you have said, but I feel like even for those who haven't read the book, they get a very good sense of what your book is about. When I was thinking about the writing process, I was also interested in something more concrete because as you point out, there are many gaps uh, in, in, in academic research regarding how the Balkans are analyzed. And what I found fascinating with keeping in mind all these gaps is that you keep in bird view all the time in writing. Like you never get lost in details and, and uh, which could come as a result of, oh, maybe my readers don't know exactly uh, what kind what kind of political role Kosovo played during the Yugoslav era. So let's write two more chapters, two more paragraphs uh, to explain the situation. You avoid that without giving the feeling, without um, the, the, the pedago pedagogical disadvantage. So you don't dwell into these very technical details, but you still um, uh, make the region very tangible from a post-colonial or decolonial perspective. So this is, uh, I found that very fascinating. So how do you keep the bird view all the time? I mean, a lot of it comes also from making, uh, making the region and its populations legible to um, post-coloniality, but also maintaining a certain history of solidarity that has been there and that in the last 20 to 30 years since the end of the Cold War has been actively erased. And so I think it's important, for instance, to remember the Cold War non-aligned movement when the presence of post-colonial communities in uh, the socialist world, in the second world, or the relations between the first and second world were very much um, aligned. So, um, I mean, that's one of the reasons that I've tried to kind of think from that perspective. Um, or even before the Cold War. I mean, if we think of, let's say, World War One, when during the um, Crimean War and during the Albanian, quote unquote, War of Independence from the Ottoman Empire, a lot of help came from uh, Muslims in India, uh, from Muslims as far as Singapore. And so these geographies of solidarity are entirely erased from uh, our historiography. You just don't find them anywhere. But they are very real and they exist, obviously. As a matter of fact, I would say these are probably the only forms of solidarity um, with Muslims in the Balkans at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. Um, I mean, it's not like these sympathies came from the West, which is what national historiographies would want to suggest um, today. So I don't know if that answers your question, but part of the project is also to not get caught up in responding to um, Eurocentric historiography, but rather narrating a history, an erased history, 
from the perspective of let's uh, say the undercommons, mm. uh, from the perspective of histories that have not been written in. Mm. And so when you do that, obviously those Eurocentric narrations of place and space and time will inevitably come up. But the important thing is to kind of um, address, like I said, the absent issues, the erased issues and the intentionally uh, forgotten issues. Yeah, that answers my question uh, to 100%, I would say, because um, I also had um, I also had the impression that you wrote the book um, not having in mind the typical audience, uh, gatekeeper, white audience, who one is... Uh, uh, one is uh, often confronted with university, for example, at a master's level, bachelor's level, but you go beyond that perspective by adopting what I call this bird view. And this bird view is the result of the fact that you want to show that there are more to the Balkans than what is accepted as conventional vis wisdom on the Balkans. So, yeah, it definitely answers the question. Well, yes, and I would say what passes as conventional wisdom generally comes from area studies anthropologists who had a very particular political agenda in locating the communities that they studied in a very particular time and space. And so, of course, these are the gatekeepers, because in most Western universities, area studies departments are run by anthropologists who have studied various communities in the Balkans. And so, for instance, if you look at Muslims in Bulgaria, or if you look at Islam in Albania or Bosnia, most of these uh, academic knowledge production comes from Western universities right. during the Cold War, from area studies academics, who have a very particular view and understanding of what is going on here. So when you speak uh, from a perspective of, let's say, Albanian Muslim, that voice gets silenced, especially when it contradicts those narratives and those accounts of what is actually happening here. And so, of course, I mean, this, I don't want to go as far as Spivak uh, can uh, sort of the native uh, speak kind of question. But of course, if the native complements uh, the narration of the Western area scholars, anthropologist, then clearly you are allowed space within that framework. But the moment you question that framework, then it becomes impossible to kind of um, address this mm -hmm. without experiencing some form of exclusion, opposition, which I have over the years in various, especially when it comes to questions of Islam in the Balkans, in part because so many Western anthropologists have built their entire career on orientalizing Muslims in the Balkans. And so like this kind of a talking back um, is not only problematic because of the kind of uh, knowledge that they've produced in the region, but also because of their problematic positionality vis-a-vis -vis the question of Islam in the Balkans. And to just go to another topic you elaborate in your book, 
on Twitter, we have we regularly have this debate, are Albanians white, are they not white? And I think you give an answer which is more delicate and more on point than the yes or no question, are they white or not? But you show how coloniality and uh, whiteness as unavoidable because it's the um, uh, it has the status of hegemony in the current geopolitical system. And to do this, I'd like to, to read a sentence I think very well captures that. In, in page four, you write, the normalization of post-socialist racist politics has gone hand in hand with the EU and NATO's Eastern expansion. I mean, what I found um, excellent in this sentence is that, or in the paragraph, better to say, is that you link this co uh, this conventional things everybody uh, with a little bit of Balkan knowledge uses EU and NATO to matters of whiteness. So if racism is the unwritten norm of a white society, the institution that allows this to happen are EU and the NATO. And you have one of the concepts you elaborate in the book is geopolitical whiteness. Could you elaborate that concept a little bit further? Sure. So before I go there, I want to address the first sort of issue you raised, which is the question of Albanians and whiteness. And I would start there because I think those two questions um, are connected. Yeah, sure. Um, so all of Albanian modern historiography is deeply invested into whiteness. Um, all of the, the, the entire purpose of Albanian language studies in the 19th century by Austro-Hungarian anthropologists and linguists, primarily, but not only, was to prove that Albanians who have, quote unquote, converted to Islam and are now Muslim are actually the oldest and most ancient white European tribes in the Balkans. And their language proves this because of some of their theories that it supposedly comes from the Illyrian. And so these kind of ancient narratives that are revived in the 19th century by predominantly, like I said, Austro-Hungarian, but also British anthropologists, which then become the key references for the Albanian national independence movement. And so the reassertion of racial white purity in the Albanian discourse is constant and dominant, and I would say hegemonic, in yes. the sense that Albanians have to also construct this identity, not only to make a claim to belong to Europe in their struggle for independence from the Ottoman Empire, but also vis-a-vis -vis continuous claims by uh, Serbs and Greek nationalists who had their own claims on Albania, that Albanians are not necessarily um, indigenous people to the Balkans, that they arrived here with the Ottomans, that they're Turks and Muslims. And so therefore, these territories should be given to Serbia and Greece, and Albanians should be shipped to um, whatever is left of the Ottoman Empire and later Turkey. And part of the project actually worked, right? So the goal of the Albanian modern historiography was to prove indigeneity um, of the or autochtony of the Albanians in the Balkans. And the way this was done was to assert a racial argument to say that Albanians are racially white and therefore they belong to Europe. 
And race had to be enacted because Albanians couldn't enact religion, say like the Greeks or the Serbs who, or the Bulgarians, who in their separation from the Ottoman Empire used religion to say that we are Christian people under a Muslim empire and separating from the this Muslim empire and attaching ourselves to Christendom was enough of an argument. I mean, this is what especially the Bulgarian independence, but also the Greek independence movements uh, did. And so because Albanians were majority Muslim, the argument had to be located elsewhere and race sort of became this dominant form in which Albanians articulated their national their national nationality and their ethnicity. And so that becomes, like I said, uh, uh, a constant reference that then features in all post-Ottoman uh, Albanian historiography. Um, and what I mean by, to I mean, of course, to connect this to what I mean by geopolitical whiteness is that in the post-Cold War moment, where we have sort of a global reordering, what that reordering means, or that reordering is imagined along racial lines. And so who, because when we speak of the end of the Cold War, the narrative is generally of the end of the Cold War, right? The end of borders, which is why the collapse of the Berlin Wall becomes so symbolic in the narration of the end of the Cold War. But the wall falls for the unification of white people, and then new walls are erected along the geopolitical boundaries of whiteness, right? And so, like, as we see the unification of Europe and increasing collaboration between what is now called the Euro-Atlantic Alliance, increasingly we have the intensification of borders um, alongside these territories. And so geopolitical whiteness um, is sort of a, a, what I mean by it is a, a formation that emerges at the end of the Cold War to designate who can belong within this geopolitical enclosure, who can be integrated, what political processes they must follow to belong, and who can't. And so obviously, in borderline territories like the Balkans, where these boundaries of who is European and who isn't are obviously very blurred, this process has become a lot more complicated. And to go back to what I mentioned at the beginning, this is the reason that those populations and countries that are perceived as unquestionably white and Christian had a very had not necessarily a very challenging process of integrating into the European Union, into NATO, and so forth. Whereas those countries who are questionably white, because they're majority Muslim, um, they, I mean, in this instance, I would say, you know, Bosnia, Kosovo, um, and Albania, or because they have large Muslim populations like Macedonia. I mean, so, and then if you look at the map, these are the only countries that are actually not fully integrated, but they are constantly pressured to prove themselves uh, worthy enough to be integrated in return for guarding the borders of the European Union and so in reproducing whiteness. And so I'm only focusing on the Balkan route, obviously, but these processes are more or less the same all along the borderlands 
the geopolitical borderlands of the post-Cold War. Rather, you look at the U.S.-Mexico border, rather you look at the uh, EU non-EU border along the Balkan route, or the EU-Mediterranean border, you have more or less similar processes of uh, race formation. And by that, I mean uh, the designation of people who can be considered and potentially integrated into whiteness and those who must remain outside. And so migrants and refugees and Roma people in particular blur these boundaries again um, because they question these narratives at the borders. Um, as they cross these borders, as they form solidarities with locals, as they revive narratives of belonging that go beyond these borders, um, these tensions and contradictions of um, Europe, Europe's geopolitical borders become even more visible. <laughs> And just to complete the picture, how would you, what do you have to say about Bosnian investments in whiteness? Are they, are they the same as Albanian or does it differ from the Albanian case? I mean, of course, I think like, like Albanians, Bosnian uh, dominant discourses are invested in ancient and medieval narratives of producing a sort of pre-Ottoman history when they actually belong to Europe. So similar to the Albanian narrative that goes into medieval or ancient times to seek this pre-Ottoman, pre-Muslim, Europeanist and European belonging. In Bosnia, you have um, um, a constant reproduction of pre-Ottoman Bosnian historiography, medieval Bosnian historiography, where when the Bosnians belonged to Europe, when they were aligned with the Kingdom of Hungary and so forth. And so, uh, I mean, that's one way in which Bosnian and Albanian historiographies um, seek to locate themselves in the European memory map, right? Um, but other ways are also um, <clears throat> the secular uh, forms of invoking Bosnian Islam or Albanian Islam or Balkan Islam in general as supposedly a more secular, a more European and a more quote unquote moderate uh, Islam from which Europe shouldn't be afraid of, unlike obviously always in contrast to um, Arab or African forms of Islam, which obviously are always contrasted as more fanatical, uh, more radical, and so forth. And so this is also another way in which um, the secularism is deployed um, towards whiteness in both Bosnia and Albania. I mean, having said all this, I should say that there are obviously differences. Um, and I think these differences have to do more with the fact that Albanian 
the, the Cold War histories, the fact that Albanian historiography emerges predominantly during the socialist period in the context of Albania, or socialist Albania, and Bosnian historiography emerges a little bit earlier with the occupation and colonization of Bosnia by Austro-Hungarian Empire and the establishment of Zemarski Muse or the Bosnian National Museum and the establishment of a, of a, of a Bosnian um, tam historical temporality that starts, let's say, with medieval Bosnia, more or less erases the Ottoman Empire and sees Austro-Hungarian colonization of Bosnia's reintegration into Europe. And I would say in the Albanian historiography, this comes later. And there are multiple differences that I talk about in the book of what this, um, what these particularities uh, mean for a specific case. Yeah. Um, speaking about Bosnian and Albanian investments in whiteness, um, your book gave, um, reminded me of a metaphor to illustrate how, in my opinion, after having read the book, whiteness functioned for these two populations in the Balkans. So we exclude the diaspora, we look only at the Balkans. And I would say it functions as follows. It's like when you make it to a VIP party without being on the guest list. Um, but then when you're in the party, in which you weren't explicitly invited, you're constantly afraid of being exposed. And your fear is not so much uh, expressed in clothing because you have nice clothes on, but it's more in your anxious eyes, in, in unsecure gestures. So you constantly live with the fear of being exposed and do everything to avoid uh, being exposed. So did I get it right? How whiteness functions for these I mean identities or not? I mean, I think it's an interesting metaphor, but I would I wouldn't necessarily say there's fear. I think what happens in in the in the case of both Bosnian and Albanian sort of integration into uh, Euro-Atlantic structures is more or less. I mean, of course, there is the fear of being exposed naturally, but I think there's more overcompensation than anything else. So rarely would you come across such a strong discourse on support for the Euro-Atlantic integration and the transatlantic alliance to be for that discourse to be so dominant in any other part of the world as it is in Bosnia and in Albanian in the Albanian sphere right so there's this overcompensation that needs to constantly that we need to constantly reassert our unquestionable Europeanness which others don't necessarily have to. And as Fatma El-Tayeb says in European Others, the fact that you have to corroborate and assert Europeanness, it means that you are neither perceived nor constituted as such. Because obviously if you were, you wouldn't have to do that. So I think, uh, I mean, it's like I said, it's a very good metaphor, but I think more than fear, there's the tendency for overcompensation. And so what happens in the process of overcompensation is also throwing everybody else under the bus that is in the way of your European integration mm -hmm. and uh, subserviently uh, taking on the role of patrolling Europe's border. So in other words, not showing any solidarity with refugees, with migrant, with Roma people, right? With anybody that seems to be in the way of this kind of process of integration. So I would say it's a far more sinister and violent process 
rather than a fearful one, in part because national elites in both countries have more or less a very clear-cut definition of what this process of integration means. I completely agree. I completely agree. And uh, the aspect of overcompensation you have explained now is really one of the passages that marked me a lot while reading the book. But I chose to speak about fear because it makes the metaphor more graspable. But of course, it works also with overcompensation. If you go to a party to which you do not belong, I think you also start overcompensating, uh, motivated by the fear of being exposed. But let us add, uh, let, let's go to another very important aspect in your book. I mean, most people think, when they think about Muslims in the Balkans, they, I think, primarily think about Bosnians and Albanians, and they leave out the third very, very important group, which are Roma Muslims. In the Balkans, most of the Roma are Muslim. And I would like, I didn't know that before, but reading your book, it made me understand that you're basically an uh, expert on Bulgaria. So could you please speak a little bit about um, the situation of Roma Muslims in Bulgaria? I would just start with the emphasis that I, I don't, I mean, I wouldn't call myself an expert on anything, in part because of how loaded that term of being an expert in the Balkans means. I mean, and the role that Balkan experts played especially during the 90s. But I mean, that said, um, I do agree with you that the uh, question of uh, religion um, and especially Islam in Roma communities when they're studied, not just in Bulgaria, but throughout the Balkans is generally erased. And it's erased because um, while you can discuss uh, the question of uh, racialization because of uh, the historical othering of Roma people in the Balkans, you wouldn't necessarily address the religion, in part because there would be less sympathy for this kind of um, double racialization that Roma people experience, right? So it's one thing to be a Roma. It's a whole different thing to be both Roma and Muslim. And so it's a double-edged uh, sword. Um, and so in, if you look at the question of Muslims in Bulgaria, it's generally dominated by the question about Turks or the Turkish minority, um, or the question of Pomaks, the Bulgarian speaking Muslim minority, like the Roma, as I said, the Roma Muslim aren't necessarily integrated. And this isn't just a question of, you know, um, why the hegemonic knowledge producing centers who have researched Bulgaria have focused on these communities. But it also has to do with the fact that the larger, by and large Muslim communities themselves uh, maintain this kind of segregation. So I think the question here becomes, how do you address the question of race and racialization within Muslim communities without uh, making that argument, sort of serving that argument to um, people who are so willing to deploy it towards um, the further splintering and division within Muslim communities in the Balkans. Uh, let's say like the one that is between refugee Muslims, Arab Muslims and Balkan Muslims. And so the further fragmentation of these communities as let's say Roma Muslims and white Muslims. Um, so I think that, I mean, I think the question of 
Roma Muslims in Bulgaria also raises several questions about assertions of whiteness that Bulgarian historiography has made over the years, even the more critical ones, right? So like uh, I look at uh, Todorova's uh, book, Imagining the Balkans, where um, there is no account of Roma Muslims, right? So if Muslims are mentioned, they're mentioned in other contexts, but not necessarily in the Bulgarian context. And so what that what does that do? What the, the, the erasure of their very existence then allows for some sort of uh, unquestionable Europeanness that is built on the silencing of their very existence. And what I find um, ironic is that this is the same exact thing that the Bulgarian Communist Party did. Um, it silenced um, the very mentioning of Roma population, right? It didn't even try to, it didn't even engage in any elaborate process of assimilation or quote unquote rebirth as it did with other Muslim populations like the Turks or the Pomaks, in part because if the Turks and the Pomak populations were white and they were only Muslim and by reconverting them to Bulgarianness, they could be converted so because they were white, Roma people were seen as beyond conversion. And so this gap, right? I mean, the, the lack of addressing this history um, creates the kind of fantasies of whiteness, which then reproduce narratives of belonging that are obviously not comprehensive, but rather contradictory. So let's move on to the <clears throat> to another big, a very important aspect of your book, it has to do with um, gender and sexuality to um, uh, two layers of uh, analytic layers you add to your to your book that are so important to uh, address other aspects of whiteness. To do this, I would like to read a short uh, short passage of your book, and then we will go on with the <clears throat> questions. So. While the geopolitical designation of borders has been enacted by Euro-Atlantic security structures, the questioning on the ground has been generally disrupted by queer and trans people whose embodiments, desires, dilemmas, and destinations for a different and possibly decolonial politics of solidarity open new fugitive flights from the enclosure while also shifting the geographies of reason, which is uh, were added with a quotation from Kanzler 2016. Um, so basically the question here is how sexual politics were deployed in uh, constructing Albanian whiteness. In your book, you show two um, ways how this has been done. During communist Albania, the idea was the ambition was to um, construct a heterosexual, sexual, masculine sexuality, which was done through pathologizing Islamic sexualities, or in other words, by employing homophobia. But after the Berlin uh, Wall fell, we have a different um, tactics, um, which operates via homonationalism. Would you like to elaborate on these two dynamics a little bit more? Sure. I mean, I think the 
I think the quote talks, the quote that you just mentioned, I think relates more to the ways in which um, queer and trans communities trouble these uh, bordering politics in the Balkans um, and question their very orientations and their very foundations. Um, but maybe by addressing the other question that you raise about um, the post-Ottoman straightening of the Albanian um, male masculinity through uh, secularism um, and integrating it into the Euro-hetero binary is perhaps going to lead us to the uh, first point that you made by reading that uh, paragraph. And so I think this question is a little bit more complex and I think it deserves a little bit more explanation. I'll start with the fact that Albanian historiography as we know it today has been established during the socialist period. Prior to the socialist period, we can't necessarily say that we have a coherent centralized narrative, national narrative of Albanianness. I mean, obviously there are various historical assumptions made and um, uh, publications on uh, the struggle of the Albanians under the Turks in the uh, monarchy period under Zogu, but there isn't necessarily a concentrated effort nor there is an Albanian academy or research prior to the socialist period that tackles these issues, I'd say, more seriously. And so the Albanian socialist state creates uh, a narrative, a national narrative and historiography that imagines both the past, the present, as well as the future. And so in this national narrative um, that is both obviously factual and fiction, like in most histories, right? So like if the if the Albanian Academy of Arts and Sciences produces knowledge, historical knowledge on let's say certain events and movements, Albanian literature and art is meant to imagine um, visually or literary what these events meant and what these movements meant. And sexuality is sort of a central um, dynamic through which uh, Ottoman slash post-Ottoman Albanian subjectivity is formed. And this is not necessarily particular to the Albanian historiography because you, you find it throughout the Balkans whereby the queer, the uh, questionable, uh, the homosexual is generally um, the Turk, the Ottoman, the Muslim, and the straight and the stable um, male hero is one who um, fights and wins over um, the battle of morality with the immoral Turk or Muslim, let's say. Um, and so in the Albanian discourse, this becomes even more complex, in part because 
if let's say in the Bulgarian, Greek, or Serbian narrative, the other is Muslim and Turk at the same time, in the Albanian narrative, there is something that ha- that troubles this narrative from within in the sense that most Albanians are still Muslim, right? And so um, the way in which this is addressed then has the need for sort of clearing the body and reorienting the desire towards um, heterosexuality. So the introduction of these, or the, 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 the introduction of these histories works primarily through um, straightening historical figures and giving them agency as a way of overcoming homoeroticism or homosexuality. If that makes sense. It does. I mean, I'm not sure if I address the entire the entire question because obviously, <laughs> I mean, there's just so much, um, especially since this is one of my favorite topics in the book. I think there's just so many ways in which you can approach it from. But I guess fundamentally what I'm trying to argue is that the post-Ottoman orientation towards Europe is imagined and enacted through sexuality and in particular the heterosexualization of the Albanian male subject and the erasure or ridicule of all other subjects. Yeah. And so to be <clears throat> European in the context of post-Ottoman Albania is to be heterosexual, right? And to be able to overcome the urges of homoeroticism, which may dilute your Europeanness. Um, and so obviously in the book, I go into more detail um, in treating various literary works um, yeah. from the socialist period, um, but also addressing um, the archive, the late Ottoman archive through the works of Marubi. Uh, Pieter Marubi, who has fortunately recorded um, this moment of uh, engendering um, Europeanness by virtue of uh, do, doing away or violating the Kuchek figure, which is uh, cross-dressing um, entertainers in urban Ottoman Albania. And so one thing that he's done great is he's actually enacted these moments in his studio as he's probably witnessing this process um, towards the end of the Ottoman Empire and the beginning of Europeanization and modernization in Albania. And obviously these are not straightforward processes. They're very complex. Part of them come from through the process of industrialization and the emergence of a bourgeoisie, right? Uh, and the bourgeois norms of heterosexuality and patriarchy. Um, but part of them also come from the International Control Commission. And they're very much top-down processes whereby um, the international uh, army stationed in Albania 
is meant to also police morality and police gender as well. And so like these are the dynamics that I'm that I've addressed in more detail in the book in the process of creating sort of from Muslim, from questionable Muslim sexualities, uh, stable, secular sexual subjectivities. Yes. And also let me add that uh, you have printed some of Marubi's works. Some of the images are printed in your book. So everything you have de described here, uh, the readers of your book also can really see them. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's this second step in creating whiteness through sexuality in the Albanian case. And I would say this happens with the fall of the Berlin Wall, where um, homonationalism starts playing a role. This is also, you link the two cases. How do you, how do you link these two dynamics? I mean, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that sexuality is obviously a tool of empire and also is a tool of race making, as is uh, desire. And so it's not uh, unusual that uh, sexuality was deployed as a structuring uh, tool in the context, in the sort of post-Ottoman, but also post-Cold War context um, in Albania. Um, and I'm looking at the particularities of the Albanian case, although obviously this is, uh, there's many works out there that look at how sexuality structures the post-colonial subject, um, Ra like Raul Rao's work or Jasbir Puar's work in, on uh, homonationalism. I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that if um, at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, if in the post-Ottoman moment, the structuring of um, straight, the straightening of Albanian male uh, sexuality and subjectivity works through the hetero-homo binary, um, in the post-Cold War, the politics of sexuality are deployed towards uh, queering this uh, straight, straightened uh, sexuality. And so if the demands for the Albanian male masculinity at the end of the Ottoman Empire was for him to be straight and to bring under control, therefore, um, women, right? Um, the peasants and the working class, because those are all uh, processes of subjugation that the creation of heterosexuality means, not just in the Albanian context, but more wildly in the in the post-colonial context. In the post-Cold War era, it's the queer uh, subjectivity that is deployed to police, um, um, especially Muslim communities. Um, and so I guess I'm trying to link the two by uh, bringing about the irony that the um, sexuality plays a role in sort of modernity slash coloniality. Um, but in doing this, like I said, I'm only addressing the Albanian case in more detail, but I'm obviously not doing anything new in the sense that Maria Lugones and the entire decolonial school of thought has already addressed um, this issue at length 
but primarily from the Latin American perspective. And so I think it's important that um, the ways in which sexuality has played a role in structuring modern subjectivities in other parts of the world through modernity, coloniality, is important to kind of think about as we um, try to understand the impact of modernity, coloniality, but also capitalism on modern um, on modern sexualities. Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think it's very important to let these ideas travel to the Balkans because, as you know, okay, we are not in the best positionality to criticize here or anything, but let's just state that there's a certain tendency to monopolize feminism in Albanian discourse. And I think your take on these questions just uh, open up the debate to include, to, 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 uh, to have a more deeper debate, uh, wide, wider debate. And yeah, this is why I think it's really important to have this kind of perspective on these questions. I mean, I guess so. I, I wouldn't say that they, they're not there. I think these debates are there and they're increasingly becoming more relevant. Uh, I would just say that so much of what happens on the ground, and I wouldn't necessarily speak about feminism because, like you said, it's not, um, it's not mine to address that. But in terms of the queer community or the LGBT community, so much of the discourse, so much of the historical narrative is still financed and sponsored by predominantly the US and the European Union. And so in part because these are extremely impoverished and marginalized communities. And so when projects about bringing visibility to LGBTQI history or historicity are sponsored, naturally the very sponsor, which would be let's say the EU or the US, would have a very particular narrative in mind, which needs to be reproduced. So it's very difficult to sometimes question these narratives from the ground when you are so reliant on your very existence as a community on the uh, financing that comes from, from the West. This is, again, not to say that they don't exist, but I would say that they're marginal um, both in the activist, but also academic community. <clears throat> I agree totally. Um, I mean, your book is not only about showing how coloniality or modernity is uh, constitutive to the Balkans and also to more marginalized identities of the Balkans, but you also show um, how to imagine uh, decolonial future, futurity, I think you mentioned, uh, call it in your book. And the artist you use to do that is Aziz. I think everything you write in the book about Aziz is fascinating. Um, I'm now thinking about the music video. I watched the music video after reading the uh, passage and the bus. I mean, just elaborate more on Aziz because it's a very, very interesting and um, fascinating case i mean aziz is a, a great artist and um i've i've worked 
uh, I've thought through his work in the book in part because what he does is that he troubles this kind of color blindness that exists in all of the Balkans um, by raising questions that are present everywhere but absent from the actual discourse. And so, for instance, nobody talks about racism in the Balkans because supposedly there is no racism in the Balkans. Um, but Aziz, as a Roma and a queer artist, um, injects these discourses, injects with his art these questions into the public discourse and uh, makes these issues visible and gives space to bodies and issues um, and communities that are not, that are intentionally made invisible, that are invisibilized. Um, and so, and also he does this in a very timely fashion, right? So like he released Habibi at the height of um, racism towards refugees in the Balkans. Habibi, the period when uh, the emergence of these vigilante patrols that patrolled the borders of Bulgaria, that beat migrants in the borders, that uploaded YouTube videos of them uh, catching migrants as prey. Um, and in this moment, Aziz releases Habibi and raises questions about um, the kind of solidarity um, and the kind of love that is absent from the discourse on refugees. Um, similarly, he raises the question of racism towards Roma people in Bulgaria um, by converging the question of um, queerphobia with uh, Roma racism or Islamophobia, like he does, for instance, in the Motel song. So I think he's done, he's done some very important work and his work is um, um, has reached, I would say, multiple audiences, and I think that's why it's so important. I mean, Aziz is not somebody that just gets heard by, you know, the queer community or a very small um, Bulgarian audience. Aziz is uh, present in most Balkan homes in one way or another. There isn't anybody who doesn't know him or who doesn't know some of his songs. And so I think his popularity, um, I think he's he, he deploys his popularity to raise um, 
issues of obviously racism, but also queer phobia and transphobia. Um, and has done this in a very inspiring and brilliant way. And I guess when I talk about troubling, troubling in the uh, in the paragraph that you read earlier, this is what I mean by troubling, troubling the ways in which queer and trans people trouble the narratives of whiteness, trouble the narrative of color blindness, trouble the narrative of Europeanness. Um, and like Tiashan Kanzler says, shifts contribute to shifting the geographies of our reason, um, the geographies of our solidarity, obviously. So Aziz is not calling for solidarity with the European Union. Aziz calls for solidarity with the refugees um, killed by uh, the politics of EU uh, bordering. And so in spaces where so little is publicly said about this, even though these spaces are all full of carceral camps for refugees and have all participated in uh, blocking the Balkan route for refugees, um, I think it's so important that uh, uh, queer and trans people continuously raise these issues and try to uh, politicize them as much as possible. And so I think Aziz is probably the best example. Um, I mean, not the only one, obviously, but certainly in my mind, uh, one of the best examples of this. Yeah, I mean, you work a lot with pop culture in your in your in your book. There's Talava, there's uh, other works. Um, but to go back to Aziz, some, something else I'd like to highlight is that he's not only he has not only a wide audience, but he's also very important in uh, Bulgarian politics. Like uh, you mentioned, a few incidents the, where politicians use him to scapegoat to basically gain votes on racism by deploying racism. So this is also something. Uh, yes, of course. I mean, obviously, he's very effective in what he does because um, so much of Bulgarian politics from, I would say, in the last uh, uh, 10 to 15 years has been uh, um, related to Aziz Aziz's intervention in one way or another. And so, for instance, I mentioned the case of how Boyko Borisov, uh, the prime minister of former mayor of Sofia, prime and later prime minister of Bulgaria, came to power by removing one of Aziz's billboards. Um, and also later by critiquing or making various campaigns in his campaigns using Aziz as sort of the ultimate um, object opposition to which um, Bulgaria needs to distance itself from. And so I guess popular culture is uh, present in part because I think so much of uh, race and class in the Balkans is is facilitated if there are any conversations they are facilitated through the questions of music and so i mean there's a lot that's been written about this i think you yourself has written about this but fundamentally i mean like the you assert class and race 
um, by your taste in classical music or in rock music, classical rock music, or if you do listen to folk music, then some sort of a pure, undiluted folklore that doesn't have any Oriental, Eastern elements, right? And so like everything that falls below that standard is called peasant, Roma, Turkish, Arab, right? Like, and so these binaries are very important because they kind of, um, in spite of the huge resistance to, for instance, Talava or Aziz, Chalga, which is the genre that Aziz represents in Bulgaria, the, the very popularity of this music um, against all odds, I would say. And just and, let me add, in the Bosnian case, I think you also mentioned Sevdalinka. Sev um, well, Sevdalinka is more complicated because, I mean, Sevdalinka is also reclaimed by queer artists uh, like Bojo Vrecho for instance, but uh, but also uh, Damir Imamovic as well. But so I would say that's a, that I would say Sevdalinka is somewhat somewhat different from let's say Talava or Chalga. Um, but the persistence of this music, I mean, I'm thinking through this music as sort of a vernacular history of solidarity that is actively being erased. Um, because the kind of Chalga and Talava music that you listen in the Balkans is the kind of music that you can find anywhere in Turkey, in Egypt, uh, in North Africa, or in the Middle East. Um, and so obviously there are geopolitical, uh, racial, and class sensitivities that are injured um, when this music airs uh, on national television or is played at weddings. And so it becomes kind of this um, point of contention um, that doesn't directly address questions of race, class, and religion, um, but certainly uh, uh, indirectly uh, uh, indirectly addresses them. Um, speaking from the moment we are recording this, there are still a few months to go for the book to be published. Uh, how do you feel uh, uh, before the book is published? What are your expectations? What would you consider a success a success, or what would be a failure? Or how is your general feeling? So just to zoom out from the whole. I mean, honestly, this book has been in the making for so long. And along the way, I've um, um, I've had so many barriers, uh, personal, professional, like transformations, that it's been a, a while in the making. And I don't really have any expectations. Um, I knew that I had to do it. I knew that it has to be out there. Um, and what... I mean, what the uh, reception of the book is and whom the book serves, uh, whom the book irritates or troubles, those are not things that I can control, nor do I anticipate. I mean, obviously, it's not a popular book, right? It's like, um, 
it addresses very particular issues and subjects. So I don't expect it to be, um, I don't expect it to be like a popular book, but I do hope that people who work on these issues um, um, are, engage, are engage with it, right? Communities um, that are, mentioned work mentioned maybe it would be the wrong word communities that i've worked with that are present in the book also engage with the book i would hope so and i mean i would hope that the book eventually gets translated into maybe albanian i would hope so or serbo croatian whichever um or if not all of it then hopefully yeah. parts of it. and i hope that it it's i mean i hope that it's available um online um so i i guess i have to find a way to upload the book for free so that people <laughs> can afford it can actually buy it and i'm pretty sure there's ways of doing that today um on the internet so yeah i mean i i feel like i feel like i had to write this book it was like something that i had to do to move on from the sort of um, dead end block that I had come to uh, in my research. And so perhaps these are all issues that I had confronted throughout my research, but also activism um, that I felt like needed to be addressed. Very good. I think from my side, we have covered all the topics I wanted to speak about. Is there anything else you want to mention? No, I mean, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for uh, putting this together. I want to thank you for reading the book. Uh, thanks for complimenting the book. I'm really happy and glad you um, enjoyed it. And um, yeah, and that it will be, you will be engaging with it. Uh, during your research I also find uh, I'm also very happy about it so yeah thanks a lot thanks Piro